episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapters 2 and 3. Today we're covering actually Acts 2, verse 42, through the end of chapter 3. The Holy Spirit has arrived at Pentecost just as Jesus has promised. Peter had preached the word of God to those who would hear, and now Luke continues by telling us about the dedication of these earliest Christians to worshiping the Lord in unity. On their way to the temple, they encounter a beggar who cannot walk, and he asks them for alms for anything, but gold and silver they don't have, but what they give him, he could have never anticipated. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, July 19th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Well, joining us again, a regular contributor to the show, uh, is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein. He's pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. He's coming on with us to our journey back to Jerusalem right after the day of Pentecost. Good morning, Pastor Eckstein. Good morning. Good to be back. Great. Wonderful to have you back. Always always great to have you on the show. We we are here in the book of Acts after spending a little bit of time in the Old Testament, which I've actually incredibly enjoyed. I, I loved being in the Old Testament for a while, uh, but as I told you off the air, I, I got sick of pronouncing all those Hebrew names, or I should say butchering those Hebrew names. So we'll, we'll head into <laughs> the New Testament for a little while. And I'll, I'll butcher some Greek names for a little while. So here we are. We, um, we didn't really finish chapter 2 yesterday. We stopped at verse 41, which uh, ends uh, right as Peter is concluding his, I guess, sermon. Um, and then Luke continues to tell us a little bit about the people. Um, so we're going to be diving in right into, uh, I guess, the end of Acts chapter 2. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to start off with some prayer, but really I'd like to invite you to lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much that as we uh, study the scriptures today, especially in the book of Acts, we, we realize that we have what they had. Lord, sometimes we, we think those first Christians had it better than we do because they had such close contact with you. But, but as we look at this uh, section of Acts, we see that they had baptism, they had the preaching of your word, they had the Lord's Supper, they had prayer. We, we have what they had. Uh, you continue to give us these gifts through which your Son conveys to us his, his saving work that he won for us by his death and resurrection. So be with us now as we study your word, Lord, and help us to see how uh, this ancient letter applies to us so relevantly today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, before we read any of the text, though, is there anything you'd like the people to know? Any foundations you want to set before we go on? Well, just briefly, uh, in, in, the, in Acts chapter 2, of course, uh, we saw how Peter used the Old Testament <laughs> itself, uh, especially prophecies about David, uh, to point ahead to the fact that Jesus' uh, death and resurrection was not just some hiccup of history, but, but part of God's plan all along, that, that Jesus was God's uh, promised Savior, uh, the Son of David, uh, the, the, the one who would give his life uh, for the world. And, uh, and of course, uh, we also have this beautiful picture of, of what Lutherans would call the means of grace, the, the instruments that God uses to convey to us the saving benefits of Christ's work. You know, for example, when the Holy Spirit convicts the people of their sin through Peter's sermon, you know, their, their question is, well, what should we do then? What hope is there for us? And I love what Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, here we see that, that through holy baptism, God conveys to us uh, forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit himself that regenerates us and gives us the faith to receive these gifts of God. And then one last comment, maybe you touched on this uh, uh, when you went through that part of Acts, but I think it, 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 it's important to stress it again. Uh, when, when Peter talks about being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, he is not conflicting 
with the Trinitarian formula that Jesus gave us, as though Jesus said, well, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but then Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and, you know, pick one or the other. No, no, that's not what's going on here. The whole reason that, that Peter stresses the name of Jesus here, it's not that he's, he's denying the Trinitarian formula, because when we study early church history, we see that the early Christians always baptized in the name of the triune God. They, they understood that to be uh, the mandate of Jesus. So why does Peter there in, in verse 38 mention being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? It's because he wants to make it very clear up to this point, these Jews did not believe that Jesus was God. Up to this point, they did not believe that Jesus had any authority. So Peter is stressing, yes, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus too. In other words, it's his name that has the authority of God. So, so we include his name in the baptismal formula. So, so it's not that Peter was denying the Trinitarian formula, but making it very clear that Jesus is meant to be part of it because he indeed is the eternal Son of God in human flesh. Yeah, there would be no need for them to, I guess, really further explain it beyond that. If if the the problem at you know at the heart of their doubt is that whether or not this Jesus was really the the uh, the, the Messiah or not, and yeah, we see that we see that time and again how everything is done in the name of Jesus, especially early on, because well, that's who they're proclaiming. That's what's at question. There's no doubt about Yahweh. There's no doubt about the law. There's no doubt. There's doubt. In the hearts of people about Jesus, and so yeah, we're going to see that yeah. as an emphasis. Well, let's let's go into the text, uh, starting with verse forty-two. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And that's how chapter 2 ends it ends with them devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers um, that's a sentence which I'm sure you'll agree needs <laughs> needs a little bit of um, unpacking for people to understand what what exactly is it that they're devoting themselves to all right very good well first of all when we think of the apostles teaching we think of Jesus great commission and and teach them to obey all I have commanded you. So here we see that the apostles uh, are the ones chosen by God to be the foundational teachers of the church. Um, even though all pastors uh, speak in the place of Christ, so to speak, uh, uh, not all pastors are foundational teachers. That's why we kind of uh, um, wince a little bit, and, and the hairs of our neck stand on end when we get some people that they claiming that they're a modern-day apostle, uh, in the sense that they have direct uh a, a line of authority from God and, and can even give us new teaching. No, there are not modern-day apostles. There was only one uh, uh, generation of apostles, and that is the ones that we have here in Acts chapter 2. And it, it's the, their teaching that is the basis uh, for, for all other uh, teaching uh, throughout the generations, um, which is why in the New Testament, too, in the New Testament canon, the books we have are either books written by the actual apostles or by those in direct uh, association with and uh, with the apostles. We think of Luke being mentored by Paul or Mark being mentored by Peter. And, and so here we see that the apostles are now uh, taking on that role that Jesus has given them to convey his teaching uh, to the world. And then we get to this thing called the fellowship. Um, and I think uh, we need to understand uh, what's going on here because, uh, you know, in, in in our world today, in our culture, when we think of fellowship, we think of going downstairs after church to have coffee and donuts, you know. And, and I'm not so sure that's what it's, it's getting at here. The, the Greek word that is often translated fellowship is koinonia. And I find it interesting, it is right up against the next words, the breaking of the bread. And I have done some research. There are some scholars who argue that the translation should actually go like this, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship which is the breaking of bread. 
In other words, the koinonia, the fellowship, is the Lord's Supper, the partaking of the body and blood of Christ together, which makes sense because, for example, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses uh, the, 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 the same Greek word koinonia in, in direct relationship uh, with the Lord's Supper. So, so here we see that they're, 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 we're not just talking about you know, going out for coffee somewhere, but, but having this intimate sharing of a common thing, which in this immediate context is very likely the Lord's Supper itself, uh, one of the early names for that being the breaking of bread. And then finally you have uh, the prayers. And uh, um, now we don't want to make too much of this, but uh, uh, obviously uh, uh, this would include uh, not only our Lord's Prayer, uh, but but also it was very common uh, back then. Not that not that there's anything wrong to have what's called ex corde prayers, where you just pray from your heart. There's nothing wrong with that per se. But very likely uh, the the prayers here were a bit more ordered. They not only included the Lord's prayer uh, that Jesus Himself gave us, but but also the Psalms. It was very common for them to pray uh, the Psalms and other Old Testament scriptures at this time. And and so here we see that 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 God's means of grace are at the center of their very life as God's people. You, you, you have baptism already being mentioned in the previous verses, and then the, 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 the teaching of the apostles, uh, you know, the preaching of the word, and then, of course, the Lord's Supper. And then what flows from all of that, of course, the prayers, where we say back to God what he has said to us, uh, his word uh, directing our prayer life. Now, I couldn't agree more. In fact, uh, this is what I've always taught. You know, I, I get to my congregation, and, and a couple congregations that I've served, I've, I've always said, you know, why, slowly, I'm like, why do we, why do we call the, the coffee hour the coffee hour or, or something like that? Because as you're right, the word, the word there, koinonia, with fellowship, you know, I guess I've looked at it, and it's, I, don't think it's not, I don't think it's different than what you said, but I've always looked at it as this. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, colon, the breaking of bread and the prayers. So I saw it yeah. a little bit, a little bit more combining, but I think we're on the same page. And that article there before prayers, as you pointed out, is important. It's not just praying, it's the prayers, the prayers which they would have said. They're, they're still going up to the temple every day. They're still engaging themselves in the Jewish prayers. But we also see that article before breaking of bread. Because it mentions breaking a bread later, or breaking bread later in this same passage, but probably not the same thing. In this case, it's the breaking of bread. So even exactly. even there are some scholars that won't go as far to say Lord's Supper, but they at least acknowledge that there's some sort of special fellowship meal going on. Regardless, I, I think we're right in saying that the fellowship of the church finds its fulfillment in the breaking of bread and the prayers, not not in the coffee time afterwards. Um, and, and, right. and yeah, and look, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed uh, were together and had everything in common. Brother, does, does this mean that we have to go sell all our possessions and, you know, give them all to the church and just become a big commune? Yeah, here we see we're supposed to all be communists. That's what it's teaching here. That's no, right, that's right. <laughs> No, well, first of all, you have to look, you know, I, I've actually heard people uh, use this as the way that, oh, Jesus wanted us all to be socialists, you know. Uh, no, first of all, no one uh, forced them to do this. Uh, th this was a willing thing on their part. And secondly, th there's nothing here saying that none of them ceased to have any private property. What it does say, though, is that they willingly sold some of their possessions and then combined them and then uh, used them collectively um, uh, to support the body of believers, uh, and uh, uh, we, of course we know we know uh, in other parts of Scripture that there's uh, other ways that offerings are used besides helping the poor. You know, for example, to to um, you know support the, the the pastors and the like who would earn their living from the gospel. But a big part of the offerings too, especially in those days where where there was no welfare state. Uh, a big part of the offerings was to care for the needy within the Christian community. And when you think about that, we still do that today. Um, there, 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 there's a lot of continuity between what's going on here and, and what we still do in our own parishes. Uh, for example, um, I mentioned that back here in Acts 2, no one was compelling them or forcing them or taxing them, so to speak. They willingly 
gave up some of their possessions uh, and, and gave them to the church to, to use collectively for, for the betterment of the body uh, of believers. And, and we see that today in our own congregations. You know, nobody forces our members to give a certain amount, um, but they, they give willingly and joyfully uh, because of what Jesus has done for them. And, and then the church will use those offerings uh, for the the collective good of the body of believers in the local congregation. And and one thing uh, that we have in common with them back then, just as they had poor people back then who had legitimate needs, maybe needed food and clothing, um, you know, most of our congregations very likely have a benevolence fund. I know mine does. And uh, I get to use that um, uh, to help uh, not only needy members, uh, but, but uh, also uh, uh, needy people in our community you know uh, i have to try to be a good steward of that and make sure people are taking advantage of it but still uh is there an understanding that part of our offerings that we give to the lord uh are to be used to, to to meet the needs of fellow brothers and sisters in christ but again here we see them doing this willingly joyfully in response to the gospel uh as a way of of seeing themselves as as a family in christ and and so they met each other's needs thereby you know, and we we talked about this a couple days ago when we began the book of Acts, but this idea of prescriptive versus descriptive. You know, it, are is this particular portion of Scripture prescribing for us something that we must do, or is it describing for us what the early Christians do? And so for those who would look at this and say, well, not only is it talking about you must sell everything and have everything in common, and this issue is going to come up again probably not tomorrow, but certainly this week, because it's going to be brought up again. But if, if that's prescribing for us to have everything in common, um, then we could also argue that, well, perhaps the social system whereby we are taxing people and making sure the government takes care of those in need, uh, maybe that then is not the way we should do it. This could then be prescribing that the church should be the one taking care of the poor right. and the needy. And for what it's worth, Although I don't see this as prescriptive, I do think that's probably right. a better means by which to help people. But I, I do think the church has in some ways failed in that regard, in some ways has abdicated their responsibility to the government. Uh, but without getting too far down that rabbit hole, as you said, we still do our best. We still want to encourage Christians to be the relief for those who are in need in their midst. And it says right there, verse 45, they were selling their possessions. It doesn't say, well, now having realized that no one can own anything. No, they were right, taking exactly. what belonged to them and distributing to the, the proceeds to any as had need. And you're right. We continue to do that today. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That's where we're going to stop, right there at the end of verse 10. So, in the same context that they're continuing in, uh, they're gathering together, they're continuing unified, we now have this story of Peter and John heading up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Once again, this shows us that the early Christians are continuing to participate in the prayer life of the, of the, of the temple. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting um, uh, how much uh, they continued uh, to um, uh, hang on to some of the traditions of the Old Testament. Now, later on, when you get into Acts, uh, of course, there's the whole controversy of, well, do we continue to circumcise Gentiles or, you know, or, or, or these other ceremonial laws, and they have to work through all that. But, but here we see that, that uh, as far as the liturgical life of the Church, uh, the daily prayer life, 
they, they sort of kept the the, the 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 order of that as part of their Christian worship, and it was very very likely that that uh, praying the Psalms uh, was a big part of this, and and so uh, it's not like uh, they became Christians and and then suddenly jettisoned the Old Testament. Far from it. If anything, they saw Jesus as as the fulfillment of it. So now now the the, the Psalms are prayed in a way that we see how they're fulfilled in Christ. So um, uh, some awesome stuff going on here. I think it would be fair to say that um, they they didn't see themselves as as like Christian, something separate and segregated from their previous history. They just saw themselves as faithful Jews, ones who had been waiting for the Messiah and for whom the Messiah had come. Absolutely. So so rather than like, oh, we're going to start a whole new religion here now, completely uh, uh, cut off from what we had before. No, they, they saw. Uh, Jesus as the fulfillment of what they, they have been looking for. Uh, it's almost like, boy, yes, we, 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 were, we were anticipating the, the, the uh, promised salvation uh, in the Old Testament, but apparently we got that wrong, and now we're seeing it clearly. And so for them, it was just natural to continue uh, to rejoice in the Old Testament scriptures as they were fulfilled in Christ. Amen to that. And so they see this lame man from birth, and he's being carried to the beautiful gate. And from my reading, we can't really figure out for sure where exactly this beautiful gate was, except that it was at the temple. And and they and they and maybe you have some information different, but they carry him up there. Um, people are basically dragging this guy because he can't walk up to the temple, so that he could um, ask for help from those who are going to the temple. That's a, that's a pretty good. Uh, that's a pretty good, I think, approach. You know, I always think that whenever uh, I, I come out of the grocery store and I'm I'm wearing my clerical and, you know, you have somebody who's asking for donations or, or anything like that, I think, oh, no, they're going to look at me and go, yep, here's a sucker. We're going to get this guy. He's definitely going right. to give. But, but I mean, that's kind of the idea, right? They, they associate the people of God with, with charity, with giving. And so they take this guy yeah. to where the people will be most likely to help him. And that's where, of course, he runs into Jesus' disciples. But he doesn't know him from anybody. Yes. And, uh, and what's interesting here uh, is that not only is this guy at the temple, you know, uh, hoping someone will have mercy on him, but then, then uh, what's very interesting is Peter uses this a- a- as an opportunity to not only perform a miracle, but with the idea that this miracle will open a door for him to speak about the ultimate thing of importance, and that is Christ. And I, I think this is important here. You know, the, the big question is, now, when, when Peter performed this miracle, was it primarily about showing compassion, or was there more to it? And the reason I, I, I ask that is, I'm not saying that when Jesus healed people, he didn't have compassion, or that Peter here didn't have compassion. But but you have to remember, Jesus didn't heal everybody, and, um, uh, and nor did the apostles. And so in many cases, the, the healing miracles were not to meant to be an end in themselves. As though Peter comes to this guy and says, okay, you're crippled, now you can walk, uh, now you got everything you ever needed, goodbye, have a good day. Uh, no, uh, he uses this as an opportunity to get everybody's attention. You know, boy, cripples are not healed just every day. Something extraordinary has happened here. And then Peter uses this, this wonder, this sign, as an opportunity then to tell them about something even greater than a, a crippled man being healed. He goes on to talk to them about the ultimate healing, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life that we have through this man called Jesus, the Son of God, which he'll go on to talk about in verses 11 and following. But the point being here is that the miracles that were done by the apostles were not ends in themselves, but they, they were opportunities to show that the apostles uh, had been blessed by God with an authority, uh, and and the, the ultimate way they were to bless people was not merely by giving them healing miracles, but by pointing them to Jesus, uh, through whom we, we have what we truly need, uh, the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Taking a moment just to go back to Jesus performing miracles, I, you know, I'm, I've led congregations through this. My current congregation, I'm leading through the miracles of Jesus right now. And that's one thing that we as pastors always remind people, and that is that Jesus certainly has compassion. In fact, you know, a lot of his miracles are motivated by his compassion. But Jesus' compassion 
um, isn't the primary motivator for doing miracles. Otherwise, he could have set up a, a big crystal cathedral healing palace and everybody could right. have come to him from all over. And there are plenty of times, maybe scandalous to us, where Peter looks out over the crowd. Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus looks out over the crowd. He has compassion on them. And then he turns around to people like Peter and says, well, you know what? Let's go somewhere else. We're going to go to the next town. So he doesn't right. heal everybody. And so now here, Peter and John, they heal this guy, and they do it in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, very specific, so that everybody who is witnessing it or will hear about it knows who's the power behind the miracle. But I also want to point out, I think this is a, a leap of, maybe leap of faith isn't the right word, but this is a, a demonstration, at least, of their faith. Because so far as we know, Peter hasn't gone around, you know, healing people yet. So if the, if we could take this as maybe one of the first times, he's really putting faith in Jesus's word that says he'll be able to do these things. And so I think that there's Absolutely. some something there too. Absolutely. And and uh, I think this is so important too in, in our modern day context where some people um uh, they they think, "Well, why why don't we have wonders and signs and healing miracles today?" And and my response is um oh, well, first of all, I'm not saying God can't do that kind of thing. Um, but I, I do believe that that uh, even in the New Testament, um, uh, we we see that eventually uh, these wonders and signs die out, and what continues is is the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. And so many of these wonders and signs that are being done by the apostles again are foundational, uh, letting people know that hey, the apostles are something special. Uh, they've been given to us by God as the foundational teachers of the church. And, and the wonders and signs are testifying to that. And so, you know, sometimes people today will say, well, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, people be more likely to believe if, 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 along with our preaching, we could do wonders and signs too? Well, maybe or maybe not. You know, uh, Jesus did lots of miracles in the presence of the Pharisees, and uh, they, they, they weren't any more willing to believe either. <laughs> but, but the other thing is, I always point out to people, we don't need wonders and signs to uh, make our preaching legitimate today because the wonders and signs have already been given. Uh, my preaching is based on the teaching of the apostles whose authority was verified by their wonders and signs. So, so the wonders and signs have already been given. Uh, and, and, and so the, the, the writings of the New Testament are based on those whose authority was verified by their wonders and signs and and so my preaching today already has that that foundational authority uh, because of, of of the apostolic foundation that we have here uh, again um, uh, made uh, true and authenticated by the miracles that the apostles did. And let's face it, even if uh, miracles were to happen today, and actually I'm not saying, and I know you're not saying that they don't, but so maybe I'll rephrase that: when miracles happen today. Um, people just uh, excuse them away, right? They they, they yeah. rationalize them away. Uh, so so God isn't going to use that method today for if if for no other reason. People are just going to doubt it as they did from history, right? You said the Pharisees all heard and not all of them believed. Jesus himself in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, he puts into the to the mouth of of Moses, um, or sorry Abraham. Uh, even even if someone should rise from the dead. You know, they, they, they won't believe. They, you know, they have, they have Moses and the prophets. Listen to them. And so I think that will, that's what we see here, too. They, they say, look at us. They fix his attention on them, and then he tells them the truth. You know, yeah. I, I have no silver and gold is an interesting statement. Um, and I think it's probably because, in part, they have things in common. Maybe that's why Luke told us those things. Uh, you know, it, this, is, this silver and gold is not going to do this guy any good. I could give him silver and gold. Certainly he'll eat from that. But what he really needs is something deeper. And then he says, rise and walk, but that's not the deeper thing he needs. What he really needs to is to know the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, absolutely. Well, folks, i tell you what, we're going to take just a few minutes as a break, but don't go anywhere because when we return, Pastor Eckstein and I will keep on going through Acts chapter 3. We'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein. He's the pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Before we get back to our chapter, I want to remind you that you're welcome to reach out to me anytime with your questions or comments. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook. Also, if you've been busy, maybe you've missed a few episodes or you're just looking to take the show on the road, don't forget, and I remind you every time after the break, but it's that important, you can subscribe to Thy Strong Word as a podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Or just download the KFUO radio app on your phone. You can listen to the station live from just about anywhere, and you can also subscribe and listen on demand to many of KFUO's great programming. You can also just hop on your computer or on your phone and head to KFUO.org. You can do all those things from there, too. Well, Pastor, before the break, we were just sort of in the middle of talking about the, the lame beggar who was healed by Peter and John, and they're giving all the credit, of course they are, to Jesus Christ. That's who they're proclaiming by their actions. The point is really to give, I think, an audience to what happens next, uh, Peter speaking in Solomon's portico. But uh, back to our text, you know, it, verse 7, Luke writes, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with him. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that Luke here seems to be a little bit more, I don't know, descriptive of the parts of the body <laughs> that, that are in action here, right? Grabbing him by the right hand, his feet, his ankles being made strong, the actions that he uses. Uh, could that maybe be related to the fact that uh, Luke's a physician? Very likely, and also just, uh, not only a physician, but just as a historian, it, Luke is big into details, which is uh, um, a, a beautiful thing. It shows that 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 uh, uh, for Luke, it's very important that we realize that this is not some you know fairy tale that he's giving us, but this is real people, real events that happened in history, and so he gets right down to the nitty gritty details here to show us that you know this is something that really took place. Well, I also like how they're dragging this lame beggar, the people are, to the gate so that people could give him money. And once he's healed, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, um, he hops up and he goes into the temple with him. I, I don't know yeah. if that's on purpose, but that movement from I'm at the temple to get something, but I'm there day by day by day and all I ever get is money. And these two guys come and they give me what I need. And now he's in the temple praising God. Was he praising God yep. every time anyone gave him, you know, a shekel? Probably not. You know, and uh, and and even if he did praise God when he got some money, you know, just imagine this guy had been crippled for how long? Uh, uh, lame from birth? Uh, and, and now suddenly he can walk? Can you imagine the euphoria? You know, his life is completely changed. Um, but then I think as awesome as that is, a crippled man from birth walking, Peter goes on to talk about something even more important. That's what I love about this. Well, absolutely. Let's, let's get into what he talks about. We're going to start with verse 11, and I'm going to go through, I think, 16. Here we go. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, 
has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Uh, pausing there. So, yeah, he comes out pretty pretty hot out of the gate in terms of in terms of uh, law versus gospel, right? He comes right out saying, what are you surprised for? The, you know, this was done in the name of the guy you guys killed. Yes. And uh, he, the, here the context is so amazing. Uh, I, I want to look especially at, at verse 13. Uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now, the, the key words here I want to stress, glorified his servant Jesus. Now, th this Greek word that's translated servant, normally when we think of servant, we think of the Greek word doulos, you know, right. servant or slave. That's not the Greek word here. The Greek word is paida, which is often translated as child or son, but can also refer to um, a, a, a specific kind of servant. And I would argue in this context, it, it's, it's an allusion to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Let me just read that. Behold, my servant shall understand and be exalted and glorified exceedingly. And then, of course, we know that 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 it goes on into Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant, the one who will die uh, for the sins of his people and then uh, uh, be, be victorious over death. And, and what's interesting is when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, which is known as the Septuagint, in Isaiah 52, verse 13, the, the, the Greek word translated servant is in the same word group as Pida here in uh, Acts 3, verse uh, 13. And so, in other words, uh, the servant, the, the Pida, the Pice Jesus, is, is a reference to a very specific servant. In other words, he's, Peter's wanting them to think of the, the servant of Isaiah 53, okay? He's the servant. And, of course, uh, think of all the baggage that comes along with that. When they start thinking of the servant of Isaiah 53, suddenly the death of Jesus takes on a whole new understanding. It's not as though he died simply as a martyr because they rejected him, but this was God's plan all along to redeem his people from their sins. And, and so the fact that Luke here is referring to Jesus as the servant uh, is, is Luke's way of saying that his death was, was part of God's plan uh, to have his death be an atoning sacrifice. Because as you know, Isaiah 53, you know, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was, um, uh, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes we have been healed. You know, so, so Jesus' death far from being just a, a, a mere uh, a, a experience of being a martyr, it, it was God offering his son as the servant sacrifice uh, that we might be redeemed. And what I find interesting is, is later on in Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul goes out of his way about talking about how God bought his church with his own blood. And so we see here that, that, that the death of Jesus was not meant to be viewed as like a mistake, and then God corrects it with the resurrection. But the, the, the sacrificial death of the servant was part of God's plan all along uh, to redeem his people uh, with the blood of Jesus. Well, I'm certainly uh, going to agree with you on the idea of, of Jesus being the suffering servant, and I think that's a great indication here that that's exactly what Peter has in mind, the use of those terms. I will say, though, if we understand, and we do, that Christ's sacrifice, his, his atoning sacrifice, was part of God's plan, uh, and then, of course, the resurrection is just a part of that whole cross event, then, then where, where is Peter going, I suppose, with the accusations, right? But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. You killed the author of life. To this we are witnesses. It seems like one could argue if that was part of God's plan, then they did a good thing by fulfilling God's plan. How would you address that? Yeah, and that's kind of the mystery of salvation history, because on the one hand, uh, you do have uh, God uh, condemning his people for handing Jesus over to the Romans and, and having him killed, and yet we, we, see, we see this even earlier in, in Acts chapter 2, where, where, where um, uh, for example, in Acts 2 verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Uh, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right. So on the one hand, Peter's saying, you guys killed him. But then he says, but this was all part of uh, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
And um, so it's almost like the mystery is God always intended his son to be sacrificed for our sins. But God knew that his people would reject him uh, and have him crucified. And yet God uses their very rejection of him to bring about the very sacrifice that God intended to offer. Now, I'm going to very briefly throw out a speculation here, uh, but I, I do this as a way of just driving home the point that, that the death of Jesus was not a hiccup, so to speak. It was not like, oh, God really didn't want Jesus to die, but they killed him, and God you know, uh, 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 righted that wrong by raising him from the dead, and now he's mad at them for killing Jesus. No, uh, the death of Jesus was always part of God's plan. So I, I made the argument once in a sermon I said, what if God's people had not rejected Jesus? What if, what if John had pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and all of God's people had said, amen, and they believed he was it? What then? <laughs> they, they wouldn't have handed him over to Romans. Uh, he wouldn't have been crucified. Uh, what then? My theory has always been, and now, of course, this is speculation because history didn't work out that way, but my theory would have been that after the Last Supper, Jesus would have walked to the temple on Good Friday. He would have walked into the Holy of Holies, and God would have sacrificed his son for us. Um, but, of course, the way history plays out is that, as Peter goes on to say, um, that, that uh, God always knew that his Christ would suffer, that God's people would reject him. But what's amazing is God uses their very rejection of the right. Savior to carry out the very plan God had all along to sacrifice his son for our salvation. So on the one hand, God can condemn them for their unbelief, and then at the same time saying, hey, but I used your unbelief to, to bring about my plan nevertheless. You know, of course, God knows um, how things would play out, and he certainly is going to <laughs> utilize evil for good. He does that time and again throughout history. Uh, but, you know, I don't also, and I, and I like your idea for sure, but I also think you don't have to be omnipotent or God to— uh, to, to place a bet that people are going to reject him, right? Because it's just the sinful nature of, of people. Oh, yeah. yeah, so when Christ comes, there was, you know, again, you don't have to be you know, all-knowing to know that they were gonna, people are going to reject him. People are, have always rejected God. They continue to re reject God through their uh, unwillingness, their hardness of heart, their desire to save themselves, or just their own worship of reason. And, and we see that we see that happening with Jesus, too. But it is a fascinating thought experiment to say, you know, what if everybody had just said, amen, you're right. But still, the sacrifice yeah. was necessary. Um, yeah. And another thing here, you know, uh, just the, the mystery of the person of God's son. Cause th there's times where, where, where Luke talks about Jesus in a very human way. But then you look here in verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, you killed the author of life. Now, when you refer to the man Jesus as the author of life, you're saying a whole lot more about him than he's just a man. <laughs> you know, so oh, you, yes. you've got this idea, yeah, Jesus is a man, he, he had flesh and blood, he died on a cross, and yet he calls him the author of life, which is usually a title you reserve for God. And, and so here we see that Jesus is both and. And, and not only is it a title you reserve for God, it's been said that um, the, in Old Testament, I guess, understanding, if you wanted to know who the one true God is, all you have to do is find out who created everything that exists, right? So exactly. if you were looking for to, to hire God and you want to put a, an ad out in the newspaper, you would put um, requirements, must have created all that exists, must be the author of life. That's how they identified God. So that's it's also scandalous because, and I, I don't want us to get our timelines wrong, this is only a few days, a handful of days after all this happened. I mean, we're talking, right. what, like a month maybe. And, and and so we see here that they would have known all these things. But if they just killed Jesus, then there's also some courage and bravery for Peter standing in Solomon's portico, right? This is this little shady area. It's uh, along one of the one of the uh, sides of the temple complex. Um, they're right there basically accusing all of these faithful temple-going Jews of murdering God. Um, you know, that's going to put them in some hot water. Uh, you know, a spoiler alert, <laughs> we, we might get into the hot water they get into tomorrow. But still, this is a pretty bold proclamation, not, not just because the people who are hearing it might be convicted or angry, but it's kind of illegal. 
Yes. And and so, you know, you might wonder where did they get this courage? Because as you mentioned, they're going to go on to face horrible persecution for their confession of the truth. But but here we see, you know, you know what, what gave them this sudden hope and courage is the fact, you know, they saw they saw Jesus beaten uh, to a bloody pulp, crucified, killed, and then the resurrection. And they started to realize, wait a minute, uh, not only are our sins forgiven uh, through his blood, but death itself has been defeated. Uh, uh, there's nothing uh, that can take away the hope we have in Christ. And, 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 and that gives them the courage to, to know that, hey, even if we're persecuted, even if we're killed for, for this name, uh, we, we have an eternal hope in Jesus that can never be taken away because he not only died for us, but he's now risen. He's ascended. He reigns. Uh, we, we, we are secure in that salvation. And uh, that same gospel should also give us courage and hope today. Amen to that. Well, let's keep on going. So he says with verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And that ends chapter 3. But Peter goes on to basically say, but, 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 right? Here's the law, but it's not too late, right? Repent. And here's the gospel. He was sent to you, for you. It's, it's a pretty good sermon. Oh, absolutely. And, and what I love about this, he, he continues to drive home the point that uh, far from this being discontinuity from the Old Testament, as though, you know, that was a different God, a different religion, I'm starting something new. No, no, the, the death and resurrection of God's Son is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was ever about. And, um, and so it, 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 he mentions how they acted in ignorance. It's almost like he's saying, you know, uh, you were diligently studying the Scriptures, but you were blind to what they actually meant because they were, they were pointing ahead to this man, Jesus, the Son of God, all along. And, and, and now you, you can read the Old Testament and see the truth, uh, that Jesus is the new Moses, uh, the, 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 the Son of God himself who speaks to us prophetically. And, uh, and, and it, this is, fulfills everything uh, that the Old Testament was pointing to. And so it's no wonder when we look at the early Christian church, that 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 the Old Testament was such a big part of of uh, their uh, uh, life as believers because you know it took a while for the apostles' teaching to eventually take the form of written documents and what we have is the New Testament. So so their early Bible was the Old Testament scriptures, right. and yet uh, through the apostles' guidance they were able to see how the Old Testament is finally um, fulfilled and brought to its completion and everything that Jesus is and did. Well, and I, I just love the, the way that it's formatted here. Of course, he's speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he calls them to repent, and then immediately follows it with a, a declaration that there is a refreshing. It's the only time the, the word here is used, this sort of rejuvenation, this refreshing in verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. So he explains in verse 21 that he's in heaven. He has to be there until you know the time has come. But still, this Christ for you to the people who he just accused of murdering him. I, I think that yeah. this is, the, the <laughs> to use a loaded term, the radicalness of the, of the gospel. 
that you killed Christ and Christ came to be killed by you for you. It's just it, it just shows how how God again to use another sort of uh, overused term, he's playing 4D chess with his own people. He's going to save you or he's going to give you the opportunity to be saved whether you want it or not. Um, here's the yeah. raft, take hold. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. And um you know, and I love the idea that he may send the Christ um, already here. You know, it hasn't been that long ago at this point in, in, in history that Jesus ascended, and he's already talking about God sending him again, you know, the second coming. Now, of course, he doesn't give a specific timeline here, and obviously here we are 2,000 years later still waiting. But that doesn't change the fact that Christ will come again. Um, you know, we're looking forward to that that second coming when he will restore all things. But until then, we continue uh, to do what the apostles are doing here in the book of Acts, and that is uh, to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Uh, The church continues to go out and bless people uh, with what the apostles had, baptism, uh, the, the teaching of the apostles, the, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, the prayers. We, we have what they had, and we, we continue to bring that out into the world so that more people uh, may be gathered into the kingdom through Jesus and, and look forward to that second coming when finally all things will be restored. Well, here we are at the bottom of our program. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we end today, brother? One last thing, verse 26 is God having raised up his servant. Once again, uh, that emphasis on servant, I think, again, an allusion to Isaiah 53. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, the key to understanding Luke and, and Acts is, is to read it with Isaiah chapter 53 in the back of your mind, because for Luke, that, that's the whole reason of Jesus' death and resurrection, um, to die in our place of judgment, bearing our sins and iniquities, and then to conquer death for us that we might live through him. And so um, it, it's with that in mind that Peter uh, 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 refers to Jesus as God's servant. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. As always, thanks for being on the show, brother. My privilege. So, folks, how do you think the people responded to Peter's sermon? I'm sure that certainly some believed, while others probably mulled over his words in their head. The leaders, though, well, they weren't impressed. Peter and John were arrested by the priests and the Sadducees, and in our subject for tomorrow, they now have to stand before the Sanhedrin and answer for their actions, their actions of healing, their actions of calling people to repentance, well, really, their actions for proclaiming the name of Jesus. But this gives them yet another opportunity to preach to those in power. They get to proclaim their faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then, as they return, their followers um, experience uh, ripples through the community. Their extraordinary prayer results in a powerful sign from the heavens. We get to witness the bold resilience of the apostles in Acts 4 when we come back again tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.